0: guys LD here and TJ with a small parental warning the following program contains mature content including but not limited to mature quotes drug use violence suggestive situations and, and law breaking gun love and running with scissors and just about everything your mother ever told you not to do which may not be suitable for all audiences listener discretion is advised
1: you're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby?
2: <laughs>
0: hey, guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. Hey, how's it going? It's going.
3: You're, uh, you're not going to be able to say that much longer.
0: I, I'm not. I'm going to have to have a new intro soon. Yeah. So you want to tell the folks what's going on? So, a little bit of news for you all. Um,
3: this will be my last episode co-hosting Rock and Roll Heaven. Essentially, I know you all have heard it over and over and over again, my life is... A little crazy pants uh, between dogs and work and wedding planning and music and all sorts of stuff. So unfortunately, we have just reached a point where I can no longer put in the work to give you guys the best episodes we can put out and that I feel that you guys deserve. So LD will be continuing on without me going forward she will have a new co-host coming
0: in uh for season two right LD yes we will I'll make a formal announcement about that when we actually finalize everything and so you know we're just kind of prepping the new guy (laughs) and it is a guy so there you go yeah uh so, yeah, so
3: keep an eye out for season two, but this will be my last episode and the last episode of season one. Uh, LD will be taking a short break um, before they start on season two. And, uh, you know, I just want to say thank you all for listening. And it has been a wonderful experience all around the board. I genuinely have enjoyed co-hosting and learning all about these uh, these icons that I enjoy and hopefully um, you guys love as well and have enjoyed what we've been putting out. But uh, it's time for me to take a step back and LD will continue.
0: <laughs> yeah, and like she said, I will be taking a, a short break. I will probably be coming back in June and uh, we might have a different format. It might come in a different kind of packaging, but you know, no matter what it is, Uh, the biggest thing was that we wanted to make sure that we we were giving you guys the best quality show that we could possibly produce. And so we're just going to take that time to breathe, you know, retool things, figure out what is great about the show, figure out what we can improve, and then we will come back better and stronger than ever because everybody loves a comeback. Oh, yeah. So we are going to miss... TJ greatly. You know, we we conceived this show about two years ago, and we worked really hard on it, and I'm going to miss you, TJ.
3: I'll miss you too, LD.
0: Well, I mean, we're still going to be friends. I mean, it's not like you're dead. (laughs) It's not like you're going to be an episode of the show, (laughs) so.
3: (laughs) Hey, you know, everything going on, if it takes me, you better do an episode on me. It'll be short, but... (laughs) there's definitely stuff there
0: (laughs) you'll be an opening act
3: (laughs) oh wonderful thanks (laughs)
0: love you too love you (laughs) so that's that's our big news well let's talk about something good oh yeah yeah like free stuff oh free stuff yeah free stuff is good right free stuff is good i like free stuff well you know what's even better than free stuff What's that? Free stuff to spice up the bedroom.
3: You mean like candles?
0: I mean, it could be. Like pumpkin spice or it candles? it be. <laughs> um, but with Adam and Eve, you can get a ton of sexy free stuff. Uh, if you order, you can save 50% off of almost any item, and then they will load on the free stuff. So you get a special gift for her, a special gift for him, And a third item that you will both enjoy. And then you get six spicy movies. And the best part is you get free shipping and who doesn't love free stuff. So that's 50% off and then 10 free gifts plus free shipping. And all you have to do is go to adamandeve.com and at checkout put in our code which is RRheaven. And one more time that is RRheaven at adamandeve.com at checkout. And we would like to thank Adam and Eve for sponsoring this episode. They've been really good to us, so we really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And if you're stuck in quarantine, why not get some stuff to spice up the bedroom? Which, I mean, you're probably already in your pajamas right now listening to this, right? Truth. All right. So, because we're the queen of segues right out of our ad, um, I'm... I'm going to rock it back just a hair. So you guys might have heard of some of this information in the last episode, but I wanted to kind of add to that and just kind of catch you up. And just as a disclaimer for this episode, I told you guys last week, I don't have the time or the capacity to go into all of the conspiracy theories and... All of that, plus, like, I don't legally know where we would stand if we were, like, to give our opinions on this. So what I will say is, there is a documentary called Soaked in Bleach. I suggest that you go look at that. There's a ton of YouTube videos about this. There's a ton of books that cover this. If you guys really want to go full tin foil, please check those out. Um, this is just Kurt's story. I will touch briefly on uh, the final timeline of his life, the final couple days of his life. I am not going to bring in the conspiracy theories. We just, I'm not doing that. As much as I love conspiracy theories, this is just too fresh. So that's my stance. So like I said, we're going to rock back just here. And according to the book Rock and Roll, Book of the Dead, uh, which is, it's a book that covers... I think six different artists, which is like Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, Elvis, Jimi Hendrix, and a couple, I think Amy Winehouse maybe. But it's a very salacious book, which I feel like just kind of covers like bombastic stuff, sensational stuff. And so I don't draw from it too much because I. it almost felt like the Examiner or the Weekly World News version of the story and so I don't draw from it a lot. But it actually said that Courtney had filed her first assault charge against Kurt in June 1993. According to her, she and Kurt had words about his house guns, which makes me think that he had, like, car guns or outside guns. I don't know. Uh, but she threw a glass of juice in his face, and then he tried to strangle her. Whoa! But... But she took responsibility and insisted on being arrested herself. <laughs> Another dispute broke out over who would be cuffed and booked. So like the cops showed up and she's like, mm, you should probably arrest me. And the girl was like, no, I'll, I'll go. And so he, his chivalry prevailed and he spent a couple hours in the King County Jail and then was released when his wife declined to press charges. He wasn't, I don't think he was officially booked during that time. The police, however, confiscated, for some reason, they call them the weapons of mass destruction, which what? is two 38 pistols and a semi automatic assault rifle. Oh, uh, okay. I, th- again, the, the, but is that really weapons of mass destruction? Assault rifle? Yes. I would think. It is? I would think you could do a lot of damage with,
3: a, with an assault rifle. Yeah. Huh. So mass destruction, AKA a lot of damage.
0: Fair enough. Courtney also had a bad habit of throwing kitchenware at him and calling him useless and a loser, much as his mother had years before. And we did touch on this last week, but I'm going to kind of go back. Uh, In Utero is the third and final studio album by Nirvana, which was released on September 21st, 1993 by DGC Records. Nirvana intended for the record to diverge significantly from, like, the polished, refined production of his previous album, Nevermind. Early in 92, Cobain told Rolling Stone that he was sure that In Utero would showcase both extremes of its sound, saying it will be more raw with some songs and more candy pop on some of the others. It won't be as one-dimensional as Nevermind. I don't think Nevermind is one-dimensional, though. Me either. I think it's multifaceted and very layered in my professional podcaster opinion. Yeah. To capture a more abrasive and natural sound, Nirvana had hired Steve Albini to record in utero during a two week period in February at the Pachyderm studios in Canyon Falls, Minnesota. Um, I did talk about that because I remember saying how cold it was and I am a big, big, big wimp when it comes to weather. <laughs> the music was quickly recorded within that time with a few studio embellishments the song lyrics and album packaging largely incorporated medical imagery that conveyed frontman Cobain's outlook on his publicized personal life and his band's newfound fame. And um, I don't know if I left this in. If I did, I'll just cut this out. The cover is an anatomically correct model, which you can find in like Grey's Anatomy. And Kurt actually drew the wings himself. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Soon after recording was complete, rumors circulated in the press that DGC might not release In Utero in its original state, as the record label felt that the results were not commercially viable. Although Nirvana publicly denied the statement, the band opted to remix parts of the album. Albini declined to alter the album further, and ultimately the band hired REM producer Scott Lent to make minor changes to the album on the songs Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies. Upon the release in utero reached number one on the billboard 200 and received critical acclaim as a drastic departure from nevermind heart box and all apologies both reached number one on the alternative song chart and the album has been certified five times platinum well, by the recording industry but i think it's just one say? of those i think
3: it that's one of those where it's it has remained relevant and popular So, like, young kids coming up today still know Nirvana and still look for it and buy it. Like, it was an iconic album.
0: Oh, totally agree.
3: Yeah, they're not that long ago, but they will remain a a classic album for any music head, audiophile, like, for generations to come. It's just, it was a huge part of
0: music history. Um, and I I'm think just going to take this second that. to remind you, honey, that this was almost 30 years ago. <laughs> you're like, it's not that long ago. No, it was 30 years ago. Shh. Quiet. Quiet you.
3: <laughs> I know. Just be quiet. I know I'm getting old. You don't need to remind me.
0: Oh, I think I do. No. I think I need to remind you of your mortality every day. No. Even though you're done with the show, I'm just going to text you and just go like, you're one day closer to death.
3: No. <laughs> That's terrible.
0: <laughs> Mom, LD is bullying me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually sold over 15 million copies worldwide. And it's been ranked by several several publications as one of the greatest albums of all time. I agree with that. I fully agree with that. Uh, yes. Aziran asserted in his 1993 biography, Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana, That the music of In Utero showcased a divergent sensibility of the abrasiveness and accessibility that reflected the upheavals of Cobain's experience prior to the album's completion. I don't know how I managed to get through all those words. I (laughs) I am proud of myself. Good job. He wrote, it's as if Cobain has given up trying to meld punk and pop instincts into one harmonious hold. Forget it. This is war. War. Cobain believed, however, that In Utero was not any harsher or any more emotional than any of their previous records. Novoselic concurred with Asram's comments that the album was leaning more toward the band's already aggressive side. The bassist said, There's always been a song like About a Girl, and there's always been a song like Paper Cuts. Nevermind came out of About a Girl, B, and this album came out more Paper Cuts. Cobain cited the track Milk It as an example of the more experimental and aggressive directions in which the band had been moving in the prior months to the sessions at the Pachyderm Studios. Novoselic viewed the album singles "Heartshaped Box and All Apologies as a gateway to a more abrasive sound for the rest of the album, telling journalist Jim DeRogitz that one listener played the record, they would discover that this is an aggressive, wild sound, a true alternative record. So right now, I'm going to play you guys a little bit of one of the songs off of the album in your I'm gonna play Heart Shape Box, and then I'm gonna talk a little bit about the video, just off the cuff, because we're fancy like this. So here is Heart Shaped Box. Uh.
2: i could enjoy.
0: So that was Heart Shaped Box. And yeah, um, TJ mentioned that the video creeped her out. Uh, As a kid, yeah, was for reading, sure. Like, I was reading um, like 107 interesting facts that you need to know about Nirvana or something like that. But the guy who played Jesus was hired because of how he looked. And he didn't tell anyone that he was actually suffering from a rare form of cancer. And he fell in something burst in him and there was blood everywhere. Oh no. So if you watch the video and not know that, like you're like, that guy looks really pale. That guy looks really sick. Well that's because he was really pale and really sick. Oh man. Um so uh you know, it's the last time we'll get to say this, but I have two fun facts. I think you should con continue the fun facts past me. Fun facts I, are fun for everybody. I, I will, I, I I probably will. But you this just one's won't for get you. To say it's, them it's, to me. This is a fun with some question marks. A
3: fun-ish <laughs> fact. Is it a fun fact or a not so fun fact? Um,
0: they're a little darker, but I think they're interesting. So it's a fun-ish fact. Fun-ish fact. Okay. Uh, yeah. So. In Utero was actually initially going to be titled, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. Whoa. Nirvana's albums tend to evolve over time, and so their first album was recorded under the operating title Too Many Humans until Cobain saw a sign in San Francisco that said, Bleach Your Works. Nevermind started out as sheep married to the artwork of a row of identical houses, even though that that was intended as a joke. Novoselic pointed out that he was opening himself up to a ton of potential lawsuits, and that idea was dropped. And this one, I think, is actually kind of a f- more fun fact. Um, do you, Did you ever watch, even passively, like SNL in the late 80s, early 90s? Mm, yeah, a little bit. Okay, the song I Hate Myself and I Want to Die <laughs> features a Jack Handy deep thought. Do you remember Deep Thoughts? Yeah. So it's like... If you ever drop your keys in a pit of molten lava, just let them go, man. They're gone. Okay. Deep Thoughts were really, really funny. Like, mankind is made up of two words, mank and ind, and we will never understand what those mean.
3: <laughs> I do like, I did <sighs> enjoy the Jack Handys Deep Thoughts. I think I even had a book, like a small little book for a while.
0: I think he does. I'll check no, Amazon. I, I had it. Did you? I think.
3: I think so. I think one of my friends bought it for me.
0: Oh, that's funny. Uh, even though the threat of lawsuits stopped the band from naming the album, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die, it didn't stop them from recording a song with that title. Although it might be the reason that it was left off of the In Utero album. Instead, the song with uh, the misunderstood title, it was supposed to be a joke. Found a home as the opening track on the Beavis and Butthead Experience compilation album. But in the middle of the song, after helping promote the the one television show, Cobain acknowledged a different More mainstream show when he mumbled, most people don't realize that large pieces of coral, which have been painted brown and attached to the skull by common wooden screws can make a child look like a deer is an SNL deep thought from Jack Hanty. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. (sighs) Look up Jack Hanty, guys. He is it's some of the dumbest humor, but it's brilliant. It's so stupid. It's funny. So on October 18th, 1993, Nirvana started a three-month tour of North America. And on November 19th, 1993, Nirvana taped the all-acoustic show for the MTV Unplugged at Stony Studios in New York. And we talked about that last week. So now that we are caught up, the day of the Unplugged show, Kurt had a secret that colored his mood. His stomach problems were back, and he was actually vomiting up bile and blood. Uh, he turned. He returned to doing the Dr. Roulette thing, uh, seeing multiple specialists on both coasts wherever the tour stopped. While he was receiving many different opinions on his ailment, a few of them actually thought that it could be irritable bowel syndrome, but the diagnosis was certain that he had actually tested negative for Crohn's disease. Uh, none of the treatments that they gave him gave him any kind of relief, and he swore that heroin helped, but... Whether he was off heroin long enough to know if it was the problem or the cure was debatable. So he was constantly doing heroin to alleviate the stomach issue, which could have been caused by the heroin. They don't know. But he had been plagued with stomach issues since he was a kid. Remember, his mom actually had it as well. Though unplugged to have an emotional high, 10 days later in Atlanta, he hit a physical low. He was lying on a dressing room floor, clutching his stomach. In the tour, caterers had disregarded his request for Kraft macaroni and cheese and instead they concocted a dish of pasta shells, cheese, and jalapeno peppers, which cannot be good for a a sensitive stomach. The jalapeno? Right. Yeah, that would be bad. What was it all? What was
3: everything? What's that? What was everything? Um, Jalapeno peppers and what?
0: Okay, so he requested Kraft mac and cheese, Uh and he got pasta shells, cheese, and jalapeno peppers. Yeah, the jalapenos would be really bad. Well, also, like, the craft cheese is a different makeup than like regular cheese. It's a lot lighter in that sense that it's just powder. Like all that is is powdered cheese. Right. It's not actual cheese. So I'm assuming that it would move differently through your digestive tract. Yeah, probably. But the jalapenos, I'm assuming, are like the worst thing. Courtney carried out the plate of pasta to the manager, John Silva, and demanded, what the bleep are jalapenos and jack cheese doing in this macaroni? And she held the plate up like a waitress. Then she grabbed Kurt's rider and showed where it said in bold type that he only wanted Kraft macaroni and cheese. She threw the food in the trash. And to illustrate the point further, she forced Silva to examine Kurt's vomit, which contained blood. After he left the room, Silva turned to Barber and said, Do you see what I have to deal with? I'm sorry, though. I mean... At this point, it seemed like Kurt uh, that that Courtney really was looking out for Kurt. I mean, well, yeah. If he is this sick, I mean, if my husband got is a-
3: vomiting blood because you ignored the food request and brought your own thing, that is not good for his stomach, and he's now vomiting blood. Yeah, you bet your butt, I'm gonna cause a scene, and that makes you look at it.
0: Oh yeah, you're at looking very at that. Uh, the relationship between Kurt and his managers had deteriorated to the point where Nirvana's organization resembled a dysfunctional family. In truth, it bore similarity to Kurt's own family, with his bandmates playing the role of the step-siblings while his managers were his parents. And the big thing was that they felt like maybe Silva kind of reminded Kurt of his father, Don. And so there was a lot of tempers going off he felt like he was constantly well it was like when they did the unplugged they're like why do you want to bring the meat puppets why don't you bring somebody in with name recognition you know it's it they're constantly going against his wishes right and doing things that are benefiting themselves so I can I can kind of see where he would look at them like they were his parents because it seemed like his parents weren't really, like, really considerate of, like, his needs when they were growing up because he got shuffled around from house to house after the divorce. Right. Yeah. And I will say at this point, they were still dealing with a huge obstacle. Two days after their daughter Frances was born, her parents were visited in the hospital by a social worker from the Los Angeles County Department of Children's Services. The investigation had been lost after a profile about Courtney Love had come out in Vanity Fair magazine, which we talked about the week Week one, I think. In the interview, Love admitted to doing drugs while pregnant. The article seemed to imply that the couple was still doing drugs. And as a result, Child Services sought to have Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love declared unfit parents, according to Heavier Than Heaven, a biography of Kurt Cobain by Charles R. Cross, which was one of the main books that I used for this episode. Because it's a really, really well done book. I suggest if you're going to pick up a book about Kurt Cobain, Heavier Than Heaven is... Incredible. Uh, after a lengthy legal battle, Cobain and Love were able to re- to regain custody of their daughter. They employed several nannies over the next two years to help care for her. Both of her parents, unfortunately, were still battling their drug problem during this time. In March 1994, Frances went to visit her father at a rehabilitation center with her nanny, according to Cross. This might actually be the last time that she saw her father. Hmm. In late 1993, Kurt's distrust of Gold Mountain had become so strong that he routinely employed Dylan Carlson to look over his financial statements because he felt like he was being cheated. And Kurt had the most interactions with Michael Mazell, Silva's assistant. For his part, Silva openly described his most famous client as a junkie, which is accurate, sad to say. To those who overheard it, it actually seemed like disloyalty. And I think that was the biggest thing was people didn't know what to do with him, you know, uh, he's creating some of the most important music of a generation while on this drug, and it to him, this is how he eases his pain, but he's becoming more introverted, he's not wanting to fulfill some of his duties as an artist with a record label, he's not dealing with his management correctly, and Courtney Love is kind of a loose cannon in this whole relationship. So, no one knows what to do with him. Right. In early January, I don't know why I said it like that. In early January, Kurt and Courtney moved into a new house in one of Seattle's oldest and most exclusive neighborhoods. They lived across the street from Howard Schultz, which is the CEO of Starbucks. (laughs) So... It was a very pretty neighborhood. Their house had been built in 1902 by Albert Blaine, who the neighborhood was actually named after. And it was a really big piece of land. It was 7,800 square feet, and it was three stories, five fireplaces, five bedrooms. And to the rear of the house was a separate structure which held a greenhouse and garage. If anybody knows this story, you will know that that greenhouse is very, very important. Yep. And the house was so big that, you know, people would find places to hide. He had a month break before the In Utero tour was headed to Europe. He appeared to make a conscious decision to spend as much time as he could as possible taking drugs with Dylan. Their their relationship was deeper than their mutual addictions. Kurt truly loved Dylan and was closer to him than any other friend in his life other than Jesse Reed. Dylan was also one of the few friends that Courtney would allow to come to the Lake Washington house because... If she banned him, then she wouldn't be able to get her drugs when she fell off the wagon. Um, Dylan was her main drug connection. So, again, it's just a mess. Jeez, Because the thing was, Courtney was trying to keep Kurt sober. So what she would do is she would ban people from coming to the house. And she wouldn't let certain people come in that might be a detriment to Kurt's health or sobriety. Now, the way Kirk got around this was he would actually call up a friend and they would come to the house. They'd walk up to the house on foot and then leave drugs in the bushes. And that's how he got around it.
3: That is not good.
0: <laughs> no, 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 it's not. Uh, by 1994, their nanny, Callie, and Callie is an important person in the final days of Kurt's life, but he was also heavily into cocaine. They kept him on the payroll since he was essentially family at this point. But they turned most of the supervision of their daughter Frances over to another caregiver and talked to Jackie Ferry about her coming back. Kelly still did most of the shopping on the rare occasions where the Cobains went grocery shopping. They actually struggled with the task. And there's a great part in Soaked in Bleach where they talk about how when Kurt and Courtney would go shopping, like there was no rhyme or reason to what actually they would buy. So they would have like six cans of pork and beans and, like, hot dog buns, and that would be all that they would buy. <laughs> if he could not find heroin, he would actually inject cocaine or methamphetamine or use prescription narcotics like, I think it's like Percocet, that Dan would buy on the streets. And...
3: Lovely. Lovely.
0: Yeah, so, like, literally he's just taking what he can. If all of his sources were dry, he would just take massive amounts of benzo in the form of Valium or other tranquilizers. And uh, those would actually help cut down on the heroin withdrawal symptoms. But, I mean, like, heroin is such a scary drug because one of the side effects of quitting it is death. Like, it's possible death. So Nirvana continued on. They were planning the next tour and scheduling rehearsals, though Kurt infrequently showed up. Uh, They had been offered a headlining spot on the 1994 Lollapalooza Festival. Everybody thought, remember in 1994... Lollapalooza was massive, because at that time, we hadn't really seen a festival since, like, 1969. We were talking about Lollapalooza, and that started in 1991, and it was pretty small with, like, Jane's Addiction, Susie and the Banshee, Nine Inch Nails, which is still, like, an amazing lineup, but 1994 had... This, okay, so the main stage was the Smashing Pumpkins, Beastie Boys, George Clinton, and the P-Funk, All-Stars, The Breeders, A Tribe Called Quest, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. I love Nick Cave. Uh, L7, uh, Boredoms, which was like the first part of the tour, and then the second half of the tour was Green Day. And the side stage had the Flaming Lips, the Verb, the Boo Radleys, the Frogs. I mean, <sighs> Girls Against Boys, Cypress Hill, the Black Crows. I mean, it was it was. A stupid that's a, lineup. That's a really cool lineup. <laughs> I know, and like Lollapalooza was a huge thing. So in the '90s, there was this resurgence of music festivals because that you had Lollapalooza, you had Ozfest, you had. Uh, The Lilith Fair, and you had Woodstock 94, and there were a ton of other ones, and there's one that is escaping me right now, and it's driving me up the wall. So anyway, they were offered a headlining spot in Lollapalooza, and Kurt turned it down, which I think everybody was pretty much pissed off about, because they could have used the money, and they could have used the the boost in recognition. Right. Because you would have some people that might go to see Smashing Pumpkins, and then... Nirvana would be there, and you'd be exposing yourself to a whole different crowd. So, I think that was a bummer. Yeah. yeah. So, on January 7th, 1994, Nirvana played the Seattle Arena, and this will be the band's last U.S. show. I guess some good news was that Kurt's mother actually called him at the end of January and told him that she was divorcing Pat, which was from the first episode. Uh, He was the Verbally and physically abusive stepdad that Wendy kind of put him out on the streets for. Mm -hmm. And he was excited to have the attention of his mother back. But then she also let him know that his mother, his grandmother, who he loved, Iris, was actually suffering from heart problems and was going to be in the hospital in Seattle for tests and treatment. So Kurt bought $100 worth of orchids and went over to the Swedish hospital, which is where she was staying. It was hard to see his grandmother so frail. She had been one of, if the only, stable forces throughout his childhood. And the idea of her death scared him worse than his own. He would sit with her for hours. And while he was there one day, the bedside table rang. And she picked it up and he could hear his father's voice. And so he was like, I'm just going to go outside. And Iris grabbed him and tried to hand him the phone. And he said no matter how much he wanted to avoid his father, he could not turn down the requests of a dying woman. So he took the phone. And father and son chatted for the first time in a very, very long time. And most of their conversation was about Iris, but something in their short exchange seemed to break down a barrier. Perhaps it was that Kurt was hearing some of, his, some of the fear in Don's voice. And at the same time, he felt the same way. And before Kurt hung up, he gave his father his phone number and ask him to call. So this was a a really important moment because he's finding out that, A, this abusive stepdad is now going to be out of the picture, but then he finds out that his grandmother is really sick, and, and she was the one that kind of took care of him and was one of those stable things in his unstable childhood. And then in that same moment, he actually reconnects with his father. So it's like this just one, two, three punch of... Emotion for him. So this has got to be a lot for him. Yeah. So if you guys remember, Leland was his grandfather, which was Iris's husband. And by January of 1994, his personality had begun to dramatically change. And it hurt Kurt to see Leland so humble and so scared. This is the same guy that, like, barked at Wendy for wanting to have a particular setup in the kitchen. So... He had suffered many losses, including the death of his father and the suicides of his brothers, now the illness of his wife of 49 years, and the latter being the hardest for him to bear. Kurt invited his grandmother to spend the night at the house, and when the two Cobain men arrived, Courtney was walking around in a slip. And, you know, that she was the one that kind of pushed that fashion forward. So this was like a normal outfit for her, but... (laughs) Leland found it disturbing, saying, She has on no pants. It sure as hell ain't ladylike. Leland stated that he ran into Callie in the living room and was shocked when Curt informed him that this long-haired, stoned-looking man was one of Francis's nannies. That's got to be kind of shell-shock for you to, like, wander in, and your grandson's wife is not wearing any pants, and non-traditionally having a male nanny. <laughs> that That alone must leave you shocked and shaken. But he was not nanny material. He was like long-haired, stoned out. I mean, he was on cocaine, so. I mean, and no offense, but the parents are also on drugs. You know. Everybody in this house was on drugs. Yeah. Except for Francis. Except for the baby. Yeah. Uh, The last week of January, uh, Nirvana had a recording session at the Robert Lang Studios in northern Seattle. The first day, despite repeated phone calls, Kurt failed to show. Uh, Courtney had already gone overseas with Hole, and nobody answered the phone in the Cobain house. Uh, Novoselic and Grohl used that time to work on songs that Dave had written. Kurt also failed to appear on the second day, but on the third, which was a Sunday, he arrived, uh, making no no mention of why he missed the previous sessions, and no one questioned him. The group had long ago resigned themselves to just, like, waiting and thinking that it was a miracle for him to have any kind of participation so they they just don't trust him anymore is what I got out of that right uh, but on the third day, when he did show up, they worked a full ten hours and despite low expectations, they actually laid down tracks for eleven songs, which is, that's really impressive yeah. um during the morning, a black kitten had walked into the studio. The arrival of it took Kurt back a little because it reminded him of his what like one of his childhood pets, and so he saw this as a good sign, and he kind of lightened up. Uh, The band cut several songs written by Dave, which would later actually end up being re-recorded by the Foo Fighters. And Kurt actually played the drums on this. One of the songs that Kurt recorded was titled Skid Marks. Again, never got over his fecal matter obsession. And another one was called Butterfly, but like most of the songs, they didn't have lyrics and wasn't a completely formed thought, which I don't know how you can wander into a studio without having that laid down, at least the skeleton of it laid down.
3: No, Aerosmith used to do it all the time, too. I mean, they'd go in and they'd start playing something and they'd just make it up as they played.
0: And that I get. Huh? Hmm? What'd you say? I said, and that I get. Like, yeah, improvising. Yeah. Mm. One singular Kurt composition was completed with vocals and it stands as one of the high watermarks in his entire canon. He later titled it, you Know You're Right, but the only time that it was ever played live was in Chicago in 1993, and he called it On the Mountain, and I actually have a recording of it that I'm going to play really quick, because I heard it, and it was, it's interesting, but I, I love it, so I'm going to play a little bit of You Know You're Right. That was a little bit of you know you're right. I just I, it's dirty and it's raw, and it sounds like they're doing things musically that they haven't done, and it's really really interesting. And so that's one of the tracks that they actually did lay down. And I don't know if they've remastered or something, but it almost sounds like they're throwing a little bit of auto tune on his on the you know you're right because it almost sounds like it's waving. <laughs> so. Yeah, but sometimes, and, so
3: sometimes there's like, I mean, there's different vocal effects that aren't necessarily auto tune to that th- could be intentional.
0: See, that's what I'm going to miss about you, because you can actually throw in stuff like that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I know, I just I can't figure out how to make the timing work.
0: Yeah, well, maybe one day. The next day, Kurt phoned his father and they talked for over an hour, and that was the longest conversation that they had in over a decade. As for their own strained relationship, they avoided reviewing the disappointments they had in each other. But Don was able to utter the words that many times had eluded him in the past. He actually said, I love you, Kurt. And Kurt was able to say it back to his father. And that was the end of the conversation. Kurt invited his father to come see their new house when he returned from tour. When Don hung up, it was one of the few times that Jenny Cobain, which was his new wife. Well, I say new, but, you know, it's not his mother, Wendy. It was one of the few times that Jenny had ever seen her usually stoic husband weeping. I don't know why that just kind of got me. That hit me. <sighs> Sorry. Um, on February 6, 1994, Nirvana embarked on a tour of Europe. Kurt flew to France, and the first show, they were scheduled to play a variety show. So like, you know, Laugh In or, <laughs> or The Brady Bunch Hour. But Kurt had a solution that would allow him to save face. They purchased black pinstripe suits that they called their knack outfits, which is, I think, a a reference to The Knack. They played straight-ahead versions of three songs, but the dress had the same effect as a comedy skit. And I I wish I could find... I did not look that up. I should have looked that up. In Paris, the band did a photo session with photographer Yori Linekhet. Hope I'm saying that right. Probably not, though. (laughs) Uh, One of the pictures showed Kurt jokingly putting a gun to his head. Even this early in the tour... Those closest to him noticed a change in Kurt. He was a mess at that point, Shelley Novoselic recalled, and that's Chris's wife. He just said that he was just so worn out. Kurt traveled in a separate bus tour from Novoselic and Grohl, but Shelley actually thought that their relationship seemed to get better. It wasn't as tense as the previous tour, so maybe that was just like maybe separating them and giving Kurt that space was exactly what he needed to make their relationship better. And sometimes that's what you need. Well,
3: yeah, definitely. Uh, the next sometimes you just need some space, you know. <laughs> I think everybody can relate to that.
0: Oh, my God, especially right now.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually enjoying it, but I don't get a lot of time with him. But even still, like, some nights it's just like, all right, you go inside with the dogs. I'm going to sit out by myself. Thanks, bye. But I'm just that person anyways that needs some solo time too oh yeah
0: thank god we have like our personal spaces in the apartment where we can like go and hide yeah Uh, the next shows that they played were in portugal and madrid by spain there were only three days into a 38 date tour so they had 35 more days to go and kurt was already talking about canceling he phoned courtney regularly he hated everything and everybody, he told David Frickle. He was in Madrid and he would be walking through the audience and kids were actually smoking heroin off of foil yeah. and and like screaming Kurt smack and giving him thumbs up and he would call Courtney crying and he didn't he he didn't want to be a junkie icon. So like these kids knew it was the heroin was becoming so oh god, what's the word? It was becoming So integrated with who Kurt was that it was just general knowledge that he was doing heroin. So these kids would do heroin in front of him and he was just, he was ashamed of it. He also didn't want to split up with Courtney, but they would have increasing fights over the phone, mostly about his drug use, plus the separation caused by the tour, made him more fearful of that outcome. He wanted her on the road with him, but she was finishing post-production on her album because really what I haven't spoken about is that Courtney was In the band whole. And they were really, really successful. She was actually more... She was actually famous before Kurt was. Right. And so she was working on... I believe at this time it would probably be Live Through This. I don't have that in my notes. But I feel like that's right about the time. Or Doll Parts, maybe. But she was working on post-production on her album. And Kurt went to Jeff Mason and asked what would happen if he canceled the tour, and Mason informed him that because of his past cancellations, they would be liable for any of the damages from the missed shows unless there was an illness. And a light bulb kind of went off into Kurt's head, and he was like, oh, okay, an illness. And he fixated on that point. And on the the tour bus the next day, he just kept joking that uh, since the insurance only covered illness, if he was dead, they'd still have to play. <laughs> Oh In Seattle, he knew where to find heroin, and it knew how to find him. In Europe, his only drug connection, even if he had a drug connection, he was actually terrified by getting stopped at the border and being detained. Uh, Instead, Kurt got a service from a London physician who basically would just prescribe powerful narcotics and just pass them out like candy. So he got that hookup. And Kurt would get prescriptions for tranquilizers and morphine, and that would cut the pains of his withdrawal. And if he ran into uh, any issues on the tour, all it took was one phone call to this physician who would just write out the prescriptions and international curries would ferry those to Kurt. On February 20th, which was a travel day, so there wasn't a tour, there wasn't a stop on that tour. He actually turned 27. John Silva jokingly gave him a carton of cigarettes as a present. Four days later, while in Milan, Kurt and Courtney celebrated their second anniversary, but they did it apart. She was in London doing press for the album, and they just talked on the phone, and they planned a celebration when they would reunite a week later in Rome. By February 25th, the second night of two nights, a two-night stint, and something had shifted. He didn't seem just depressed, but there was a defeat about him. He came to Chris one day and said that he wanted to cancel the tour, some bullshit, absurd reason for why he wanted to blow it off," Novoselic recalled. He was complaining about his stomach, though Chris had heard this protest hundreds of times now. He asked why he agreed to join the tour in the first place and reminded Kurt that a cancellation would cost him hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands, of dollars. There was something going on with him in his personal life and it was really troubling him, Chris observed. There was some kind of situation, but Kurt didn't want to share any specifics with Chris. He long ago stopped being intimate with his old friend. Kurt did not cancel the tour that night. But the only reason why he didn't, Novoselic theorize, was that because the next date was in Slovenia, where many of Chris's relatives would attend, and he hung in there for me. Which I think, for all that he was battling, the fact that he respected Chris enough to keep that tour date, I think meant a lot to him. Well, that's good. Yeah. Uh, On the next tour, it was uh, Munich, Germany, where they were scheduled to have a show on May 1st. So Kurt uncharacteristically phoned his 52-year-old cousin, Art, back in Aberdeen, waking him up in the middle of the night. I hadn't seen him in almost two decades, and we weren't close, but I was glad to listen. He was really getting fed up with his way of life. So when they went to Munich, they actually had booked this venue. And it was an old... Airport hangar that had been converted into a club. And so they had basically like club acoustics. It sounds like a really cool venue. But unfortunately, the acoustics for a live performance were absolute crap.
3: Oh, yeah. And
0: that really (laughs) frustrated Kurt.
3: Yeah, cool venue. But I imagine acoustically an old airplane hangar is just bouncing everywhere.
0: Yeah, I can't. Plus, like, the shape of the actual airplane hangar. That, yeah. that had to be a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Um, so so that was, like, super frustrating to Kurt. And so he actually went to uh, Jeff, Jeff Mason, and asked for his advance on his per diem. And he was like, I'll be back for the show. And everybody kind of knew where he was going. He said, I'm going to the train station, which basically meant that he was just going to go buy drugs. Right. Uh, when he came back a couple hours later, Kurt's mood was no better. So backstage, he called Courtney, and again, it ended in a fight, just like every other conversation that they had in that past week. Uh, Kurt got really down, and so he called Rosemary Carroll and told him that he wanted to divorce Courtney. When he put down the phone on the side of the stage show, he watched the opening act, and Kurt had picked the Melvins to be his opening act, and he said that that was exactly what he needed was to just listen to the Melvins. So like everything, it seems like, is kind of bringing him down. Uh, so they started to play. Seventy minutes later, the show was over, prematurely ended by Kurt. It had been a standard set, but strangely had included covers by The Cars, which was My Best Friend's Girl, and Moving in Stereo. And after, this, the, after the last song, Kurt just walked off stage. And he grabbed his agent, John Mueller, who just happened to be at the show and announced, that's it cancel the next gig but there are only two shows before the scheduled break which Mueller arranged to postpone not completely cancel. Kurt phoned the doctor the next morning and he got him to sign a slip which was required for them because of their insurance stating that he was too ill to perform so without that uh, basically permission slip from the doctor that's what would have gotten him sued and the physician recommended that he take two months off and despite that diagnosis Novoselic thought that it was an act. He just seemed burnt out, Chris said. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little story and then explain why it's important later. Kurt headed to Rome, where he was set to meet up with Courtney and Francis. On March 3rd, he booked a room, which was room 541, in Rome's five-star hotel Excelsior. Courtney and Francis were slated to arrive later that night. During the day, he explored the city with Pat Schmier, visiting tourist attractions, but mostly gathering props for what he imagined would be a romantic reunion. He and Courtney had been apart for 26 days, which was the longest span in their relationship that he had gone without her. He had gone to the Vatican and stole some candlesticks. Big ones, Courtney recalled. Whoops. He also he also kicked off a part of the Coliseum for me. Like... He took a part of the college, he kicked, can we just take a sec, he stole candlesticks from the center of the Holy Roman Empire, and then he broke off a chunk of one of the biggest tourist attractions in the world. Well, plus a historical ruin, like, what are you doing? (laughs) Jesus, man. And then he got a dozen red roses, some lingerie, rosary beads from the Vatican, and a pair of three-carat diamond earrings. He also sent out a bellboy to fill a prescription for Ruhypnol, a tranquilizer that can aid in heroin withdrawal. Love did not arrive until much later than she had expected. She had been in London during the day doing press for an upcoming album, and when Courtney and Frances finally arrived in Rome, the family, the nannies, and Smear all had a warm reunion, and they ordered champagne to celebrate. Kurt didn't drink any. After a while, uh, Callie, which was the, the nanny, and a second nanny took Frances to her room, and Pat left. The pair spent the night dining on room service and shared a bottle of champagne. Finally alone, Kurt and Courtney made out, but she was exhausted from traveling and the rehypnol put her to sleep. Kurt had wanted to make love, as she reported, but she was too exhausted. Even if I wasn't in the mood, she told Dave, David Brickell, I should have just laid there. All he needed was for him to get laid. Something about that idea just doesn't sit 100% well
3: with me, but it is, I mean, it's her husband, I guess, whatever. What what doesn't sit well? Just the I should have just laid there and let him do it, like. Mm, but okay, mm. I mean it's your husband, and if, yeah, you know if it's consensual, I
0: guess. But yeah, okay. Mm, <sighs> uh, the next morning, when she woke up around five thirty a.m., Love found Cobain lying on the floor, and he was fully dressed, pale, completely unresponsive, with blood coming out of his nostrils. Apparently, he had ingested an alarming amount of the drug Rohypnol. Fifty to sixty fucking pills. Recalls Love, and had overdosed. Love frantically called down to the front desk, and again in the in the book. Oh, sorry, in the podcast Disgrace Land. And it might be in the book Rock and Roll, Book of the Dead. But she talks about how she he would overdose. He overdosed apparently a lot, and what she would do is she would fish out a pen like a like a stick pen from his pockets and jam him in the testicles with it. But I don't know how true that is, so take that for what it's worth. But again, like I said, the Rock and Roll Book of the Dead is a little bit kind of bombastic with, uh, with the Kurt episode, with a, the Kurt section. So I don't know about the other ones yet because uh, by the time I got around to this, you had already done Janice Joplin, so there wasn't a need to look and see if there was like anything salacious that he put in there for her. So she called down to the front desk and an ambulance was summoned taking command to the Umberto Polyclinic Hospital. Upon arrival, his stomach was pumped and emptied. Shortly thereafter, he was moved to Rome American Hospital, where he regained consciousness a few hours later. For years, debate has raged over whether the incident was just another case of an accidental overdose on the part of Cobain, or whether it might have been a legitimate suicide attempt. This is what I was talking about. Uh, Love herself is convinced of the latter theory, recalling that there was definitely a suicidal urge to be globbing and globbing and globbing pills. God, goddamn man. Love also asserted that Cobain left a note which claimed in part to read Dr. Baker says that I would have to choose between life and death. I'm choosing death. In this Roman note, Kurt cited Shakespeare's most famous character. Dr. Baker says that like Hamlet, I have to choose between life and death and I'm choosing death. The rest of this note touches on how sick he was and how Courtney didn't love him anymore. The final point was reinforced by accusing his wife of sleeping with Billy Corrigan, who he had always been jealous of. And one of their conversations in the week, she had actually mentioned that Corrigan had invited her to go on vacation, but she declined. But Kurt heard this as a threat, and his visit, his vivid imagination went wild with it. I would rather die than to go through another divorce. He wrote, and that was the the other divorce, the another divorce he is referencing is the one that he went through with his parents. I was gonna
3: say. I imagine, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact is, he was really affected by the divorce of his parents. Right. So later that day, CNN interrupted a broadcast report saying that Kurt had died of an overdose. Chris and Shelley picked up their phones to hear a Gold Mountain representative with the same sad news. Most initial reports of Kurt's death originated from gave David Geffen's office. A female identifying herself as Courtney had left a message with the label saying that Kurt was dead. After about an hour of panic and grief, it was discovered that the caller was an impersonator. How screwed up is that? That's so messed up. Um, Just as friends in America were being told that Kurt was dead, he was actually showing the first signs of life. And that would be, he was basically in a coma for like 24 hours. There were tubes in his mouth, so Courtney handed him a pencil and a notepad. He jotted down the words, fuck you, followed by, get these fucking tubes out of my nose. When he finally spoke, he asked for a strawberry milkshake. As he stabilized, uh, Courtney had him moved to a, an American hospital where she thought that he could get better care and be closer to home. Despite a near-death experience and 20 hours in a coma, he still actually craved opioids. He would brag that a dealer visited the hospital and pumped heroin straight through his IV, which is bananas to me. He also phoned Seattle and arranged for a gram of heroin to be left in the bushes outside of his home, which is what I was talking about. He he would just, even though Courtney wouldn't allow people in, he would just get people to leave him drugs in the bushes outside of his house. His mom, Wendy, actually gave an interview to the Aberdeen Daily World that her son was in a profession where he doesn't have the luxury of being sober or slowing down. She told reporter Claude Lasso, or Isso, I can't tell which one it is, that she handled the news of hearing about her son's overdose and death well until she looked at the wall i took one look at my son's pictures and i saw his eyes and i lost it i don't want my son gone when he had helped her with her struggles over the last year she had been fighting breast cancer so i mean could you imagine what wendy was actually going through at this time because she's going through a divorce of her own again you know divorcing pat she's seeing her son deteriorate now he's overdosed she i think she has a feeling that he wants he's unhappy and he wants to divorce Courtney and, and and on top of that she now has to deal with breast cancer like jesus yeah that's a lot that's a lot and so the reason why i bring up the the roman and i'm using air quotes suicide is because it didn't According to all reports, it didn't become a quote unquote suicide attempt until after Kirk committed suicide. In all the other reports and articles, it's it's listed as an accidental overdose. And I feel the like, suicide.
3: But here's the thing: like I feel like that's a little bit blasé to say it was an accidental overdose. If you take fifty he had done to it before, sixty pills.
0: Yeah, but. That many? Yeah, I get that, but like even when Courtney was talking about it before his his actual death, it was an overdose. It wasn't a suicide attempt, and the letter wasn't a suicide letter. It was a div- it was a divorce letter. It was a breakup letter, right. to her. And so that's a very interesting part in the movie Soaked in Bleach because he goes through like each of the articles that it talks about the Roman suicide where it's referred to as an accidental overdose, until he actually commits suicide, and then it becomes the first suicide attempt.
3: Yeah, but I feel like that letter that he wrote to her read more, like, with the quote, exerted quotes, seems more like a suicide note than a breakup. Because he's saying he yeah. can't go through another divorce. Like...
0: it, it's a It's a very muddled thing. I don't yeah. know where I stand on it. I'm just... I'm just... I'm just... Basically bouncing off the information that I heard yeah. in the documentary Soaked in Bleach was like, I don't know where I stand on that because I've never been in that mindset before. So that yeah. was just a point brought up by that documentary.
3: I just feel like, like I say, the the notes about the letter that he left in Rome would indicate an attempt at suicide at that point versus just, oopsie, I took too many pills. Again, yeah. like... Because fifty to
0: sixty seems intentional, at that point. Yeah, that's that's the one point of contention like, that I have is like, oh no, I took six and that's too many. Yeah, versus because it it wasn't it wasn't a bottle. Apparently, it wasn't like a bottle of Rohypnol. It was the blister packs, kind of like birth control comes in. Yeah, or like Nyquil comes in. So it was an effort to actually so like to, pop in-
3: each one of them out. Yeah, you have to intentionally take that many. And again, even if it wasn't a bottle, you know you're taking well over recommended dosage to take fifty or sixty of them. Yeah. Versus, oopsie, I took one or two too many. You know, you took you took like forty plus too many. <laughs> like that seems intentional. But that's I mean, yeah. that's my own opinion on it. I'm you know, between the note the details of the note and that number
0: Seems feels intentional. Yeah.
3: Even before even before his actual suicide that feels intentional.
0: Yeah. And that's what compounds the issue with his suicide that's going to happen in April is that because of what happened in April was this actually an attempt or was this genuinely an accident because he was hopped up on something else like because he had the alcohol in his system. Was he impaired and didn't realize what he was doing? Right. So, I, you know, it's, it's, we could fight about this till the end of time, but in the end, the only person who really knows what happened was Kurt. And people in hindsight make assumptions about this and kind of try to draw a through line, but we'll never know what, what really happened. You know, was right. this a genuine suicide attempt or was this an accidental overdose? I think if I have to, if I absolutely have to nail it down, I will probably say that it is a suicide attempt. Only because of the fact that it was a blister pack and there was the note. Right. But it's just odd that in all of the press releases, interviews, and things like that, it was an accidental overdose until he committed suicide and then it became a suicide attempt. That well, was the because, only weird thing about it for me.
3: Well, and and I will say this too. If you look at the other side of like, again, just playing devil's advocate here, you know, you have PR people in place for a reason for some of these stars. So like, yeah, the spin that they would be looking at and trying to put on it was, oh, it was just an accident. No big deal. Don't worry. Like, because a suicide attempt is a, is a very, very different beast. For a public figure than someone who has a history with drugs and alcohol. That you can spin and be like, nope, he's totally fine, everybody. Just like, don't worry about it. It was just an accident. You know, whereas after his actual suicide completion. And I hate that term for it, but it's, it is the proper term. uh, Then it's, you know, it's a lot harder to control the angle of it all because people are going to then backtrack and, you know, say it how they're going to say it. So it's a lot harder than to spin it and be like, Oh no, no, that was just an accidental overdose. Like really? <laughs>
0: um, also like we have these, we have these days, we have this information now about the rohypnol and about the note. Yeah. That w- we didn't really have the internet in 1994. To get so basically, well, and they would have the contained information that. that we got was fed out. They would have contained that, anyways.
3: You know, yeah. Again, if they if it was genuinely like, let's spin this so that it doesn't seem as bad for his fans and for you know for everything, then they wouldn't have released that information.
0: Yeah, and and another big thing was that, you know, kids are looking up to Kurt, right? And if. I didn't, I don't think I even touched on this, but I'll, I'll say it now. When Kurt did commit suicide, something like 32 other people followed suit. Right. So he did have an impact on the generation. Yeah. He did influence people to do things. Like it or not, and so he was,
3: he was an icon. He was the he voice was of our generation. Model.
0: Yeah. And perhaps saying, oh, it was an accidental overdose. As bad as this sounds, I hate saying this. People would have kind of expected it from him because people knew he was an addict. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So European tour had been postponed because of this, um, and that compounded the whole thing. But they were actually, the band was told to prepare for Lollapalooza. And Kurt had never wanted to play, and he never signed a contract but the management assumed that he would finally give in. He would cave, but uh, Nirvana had confirmed that they were going to appear on the 1994 Lalo tour, promoter Mark Gregor said, but nothing was in writing, and they weren't totally confirmed, but they were working on finishing up their contracts. Nirvana's take of the box office would have been around $8 million, but Kurt felt that that wasn't a fair offer. $8 million isn't a fair offer? That's a lot of money. It's for me and you, that would be... (laughs) (laughs) Life-changing. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't enough. Uh, but he didn't... Like, Kurt never wanted to perform in, like, a festival environment, and he didn't want to tour. And that's something that he's been fighting this whole time. That's why the European tour got pushed back. That's why things got postponed and canceled. And, you know, he just didn't want to tour. He wanted to be at home. And... Uh, but that is a big part of being a recording artist.
3: So I also... <sighs> don't get me wrong I feel for the guy and I understand like that that wasn't something that he wanted but then also probably don't go ahead and sign a recording contract that would require a certain amount of touring and celebrity appearances and things like that in order to sell your albums it you know you have to do all that stuff in order to get your music out there and support what you're what you're recording and and putting out that's a hard one for me because on the one hand I understand like sometimes you have a passion for something but then like not wanting to go on tour and things like that it's like well it's not just you you have a band and you have other people relying on this and also you kind of signed on for that with signing a record contract there's a lot of things that go into that. And uh, yeah. You know, so I mean, I can understand on the one side, particularly of celebrity in terms of privacy and like paparazzi and things like that, and not wanting to do an inordinate amount of like interviews or press. But if you're going to be a recording artist,
0: you must tour. I think what he just wanted to do is make his music, put it out there, and then just live his life. And I totally understand understand that. that. Yeah, I mean, and and if you don't do the touring thing, a lot of times that actually damages your credibility. Because I remember when I was in college, there was a big hullabaloo about the fact that Shania Twain, after she put out her first album, didn't tour. Yeah. And... People started questioning her talent because they're like, well, hey, you know, if you actually can sing this well and you're not just a creation of the studio, why are you not going out on tour? Right. And that kind of plagued her. And so when the second album came out, she did go on tour and I'm pretty sure she blew the pants off people. So, well, and that's just, you know, it. I mean, just-
3: there's no such thing as a studio only artist. Like you can be one, but you won't have the success level behind you you're going to have people questioning you this and the, the label the label can't support that if you know if you aren't getting anywhere because you're not supporting your own album they can put all the marketing behind you that they can afford but if it's not coming back because you're not touring which is a big part of where money is made at this point you know especially now Album sales and all that, like they make up a very small percentage. The tours are what bring in the money and the merchandising and things like that. So they can't continue to support an artist that won't support themselves. I mean, it's it's like they can't want it more f- than you do. <laughs> like, if you don't yeah, want but that, a tour, they that can't. That was the problem.
0: You. That was the problem, was that Kurt felt like everybody in his life was telling him what he could and couldn't do professionally and personally well so he's got you know people telling him he has to tour he's going to get sued he has to do lollapalooza you know he's he's feeling threatened by billy corgan over his wife who is a volatile creature I mean, but he's, he, this whole thing is bogging him down.
3: No, and I again, I totally understand it. But like I say, yeah, he's not wrong in that respect. Like, yes, especially professionally, yeah, they're going to tell you what you need to do and what you have to do because you are under contract at that point. So it's like right. you never wanted this and you shouldn't have signed that contract initially because, yeah, they own you. They will sue you if you are not meeting your obligations. Like, yep. Because they have their own interests to support
0: as well. Well, yeah, you've got an entire team that's yeah reliant on you that have to pay their bills. and you know he's got he's got the band, he's got the label, he's got the roadies, he's got the mm-hmm. the engineers. He's like all these people really depend on you.
3: Well, and the venues can't recoup their costs because if you cancel a show, people want their tickets refunded.
0: Yeah, and then they have nothing to fill that void, and so...
3: Well, and they have already undoubtedly spent money on it. Yeah. So then they lose money. Like, there's this whole vicious cycle from it. The ticket cost is split between the band and the venue. So you're paying the venue, but your ticket cost... You're paying them out of their ticket cost. So if you cancel the show, and the venue has to refund the ticket... Then they're refunding more than they would have earned, I believe. So it's a huge, huge loss for them, too. So it's one of those things like I understand personally that at this point the pressure's too much, and he's getting very overwhelmed and he's really, you know, dissatisfied to say the least about, you know, everybody running the shots in his life but him. But at the same time, it's like, well, this is, it's just kind of something that goes along with all of it. If you want to make the music, and you want to be on the label, you kind of have to still do this. I don't know. It, Like I say, it's it's very complex, all of it. Because, like, yeah, I understand personally it sucks for him. Because it's not, this is not what he wanted. And he's realizing that he got himself into something that he doesn't want. As well as all the, the personal things going on in his life as well. Um, but, yeah, like I say, on the professional level, though, like, I, I can kind of... I see the other side of that coin of like, but you signed on for this when you signed that contract. And I feel like even then, like there's not a successful artist in the world that doesn't go on tour at some point.
0: Yeah. I mean, the thing was he left the hospital on March 8th and then flew back to Seattle. And on the plane, he asked Courtney for a so loudly that other passengers overheard them. And I feel like there's an indoor voice that you use when you're on a plane Because you don't want to be rude. So I can only imagine how loud that was.
3: Particularly when you're asking for drugs.
0: Yeah. Uh, When they arrived at the SeaTac airport, he was actually taken off the plane in a wheelchair looking horrible. According to Travis Myers, a custom agent that I wonder if that person still has a job. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) On March 12th, the Seattle police were dispatched to the Lake Washington house after someone called 911 and hung up. Courtney answered the door. And basically she was like, I'm sorry, I called and hung up. We were having a fight, but it's under control. Kurt told the officers that there was a lot of stress on his marriage and said that uh, that he was going to go to therapy. On March 18th, he threatened suicide again, locking himself in the bedroom. Courtney kicked on the door, but was unable to break it down. Eventually, he opened it willingly and he saw that there were several guns on the floor. She grabbed a 38 revolver and put it to her own head. I'm going to pull this trigger now, she threatened. I can't see you die again. After officers arrived on the scene, summoned by Love, she told him that her husband had locked himself in a bathroom with a 38 caliber revolver, saying that he was going to kill himself. The officers confiscated the gun and three others, along with a bottle of various unidentified pills. Later that night, Cobain told him that he actually had not been planning to take his own life. At this point, Love, along with Cobain's other family members, bandmates, and management company, had been trying to get an intervention going, and so they contact an intervention counselor, Steven Chatoff. They called me to see what could have been done, said Chatoff. He was using up in Seattle. He was in full denial. It was very chaotic, and they were in fear for his life. It was a crisis. He was so loaded up on heroin that it was like talking to someone in a stupor, Chatoff said. Most of my conversations were with Courtney. In an effort to get him out of the house in Seattle, where he was nodding out all day, I thought I had him coming in for treatment. Chadoff began interviewing friends, family members, and business associates in preparation for enacting a full-scale intervention. According to Chadoff, someone tipped off Cobain, and the procedure had to be canceled. Nirvana's management, Gold Mountain, claims that it found another intervention counselor and told Chadoff a small lie to turn down his service politely. Chadoff, I should say, uh, is, if you just Google Stephen Chadoff, number one, I found out that he died, I think, in 2012. If it's the same guy, but he was like the one to go to. He would take care of, you know, rock stars, movie stars, you know, it, nobody was too famous for him to try to reel in. And apparently, according to him, he was somebody, Kurt was somebody who he probably could have helped, but of course his services were turned down. Cobain was actually taken to a chemical dependency center where he received what Chow referred to scornfully as a buff and shine detox. I can only imagine what that means. Yikes a buff and shine detox? I think maybe it just means getting the drugs out of your system and not offering up the therapy that you need to figure out why you're doing the drugs in the first place. Right. Not going so to So if the root you of the if problem. you don't yeah, if you don't tackle why you're doing it, you're, you're going to, to continue relapse, doing it. Yeah. Um meanwhile, Roddy Bottom, a good friend of Love and Cobain's and the keyboardist for Faith No More, flew to, from San Francisco to Seattle to help care for Cobain. I really loved Kurt, Bottom said, and we got along really well. I was there to be with him as a friend. On March 25th, roughly 10 friends, including bandmates Chris Novoselic, Pat Smear, Nirvana's manager, John Silva, a longtime friend Dylan Carson, Love, Goldberg, uh, actually Bottom had already gone home, gathered at Cobain's home on the Lake Washington Boulevard house to take a different approach with a new intervention counselor. Novoselic is said to have staged his own separate confrontation with Cobain as well. Novoselic, I think, finally admitted to. He was the one that, that actually tipped off Kurt with Chatoff's intervention. As a part of the intervention, Love threatened to leave Cobain and Smear Novoselic said so that they would break up the ban if Cobain didn't check into rehab. After a tense five-hour session in a two-day process, Cobain retired to the basement with Smear, where they rehearsed some new material. Love had hoped to coax Cobain into flying to Los Angeles with her so that the couple could check into rehab together. Instead, she wound up on a plane with uh, Billing at the end of the first day of the intervention. The couple's daughter, Frances, and a nanny would be following up the next day. After a stop in San Francisco, Billing and Love flew to Los Angeles, and on the morning of the 26th, Love checked into the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills and began an outpatient program to detox from tranquilizers. So she's trying to get sober. Right. And I, I, I do think that that's important for... You know, if if you're dealing with something and someone else is dealing with something and you're in a relationship with each other, you do need to get help separately because you're dealing with two different issues. And it's, you know, we, when, when we got married, when me and Will got married, we actually had to go through therapy <laughs> because our church said that we had to have uh, three therapy sessions to make sure that we truly wanted to marry each other before they blessed the union. Yeah, premarital so, counseling. It's common. So, yeah, so I had to go to one, Will had to go to one, and then we had to go to one together. Of course, we passed because here we are nine years later, still married. (laughs) So it worked. (laughs) But I think it is a good thing that she was trying to distance herself from the situation because, you know, if you really, truly want to get off drugs, you need to separate yourself from where you can find the drugs. Well, it would affect her sobriety, too.
3: Yeah, because if he's... access. Yeah.
0: Yeah, if he's still using and she's trying to get clean and sober, she's just going to fall back in.
3: Well, and fighting him to get him clean, you know, it's just, all of that is a bad situation for her, too, you know?
0: Yeah. Uh, Back in Seattle, Cobain had stopped by Carlson's condominium, and that's Dylan Carlson, his friend, on March 30th to ask for a gun. uh, Because... Cobain said that there were trespassers on his property. He seemed normal. We'd been talking, Carlson said. Plus, I'd loaned him guns before. Carlson believed Cobain did not want to buy the shotgun himself because he was afraid the police would confiscate it since they had taken his other firearms after the domestic dispute that had occurred 12 days earlier. Cobain and Carlson headed to Stan's Guns, which was a shop nearby, and they purchased a 6-round Remington 12-gauge shotgun and a box of ammunition, which was roughly $300 and Cobain just gave the money to Carlson in cash. He was going out to L.A., Carlson said. It seemed kind of weird that he was buying a shotgun even before he was leaving, so offered to hold it until he got back. Cobain, however, insisted on keeping the shotgun himself. The police believe that Cobain dropped the weapon off at his home and then left Seattle to check check himself into rehab. Schmier and a Gold Mountain employee, met Cobain at the Los Angeles airport and drove him to the Exodus Recovery Center in Marina del Rey, California. Marina del Rey is gorgeous. Yeah, it is. Um, despite his inability to proceed with his plan, Chadoff said that he spoke with Cobain by phone several times before Cobain left for Los Angeles. Uh, he said that he was not supportive of uh, at all of his admittance to Exodus because it was that buff and shine Detox that we were talking about before Yeah
3: it's just detox it's not really Treatment yeah it sounds Like uh,
0: Cobain spent two days In the 20 bed clinic on April 1st He called Love who was still at the peninsula And said Courtney no matter what happens I want you to know that you made A really good record she later Told a Seattle newspaper I said well what do you mean and he just Said remember no matter what I love you were due to release their second album Live through this just 11 days later So this is this coinciding with her record release. Uh, That was the last time Love spoke to her husband. From Frances's point of view, both of her parents were unfortunately still battling their drug problems at this time. And in March 1994, Frances went to visit her father at the rehabilitation center in Los Angeles with her nanny, according to Cross. And Cross is the biographer of Heavier Than Heaven. And so this, you know, according to records, this is probably the last time she ever saw her father. She was only born in 1992, this is 94, so I don't even know if she has any kind of recollection of her father at all.
3: Yeah, I feel like, uh, I think it's something, like, you don't really start making true memories until you're, like, three.
0: I don't think I have a memory before, like,
3: five. Well, I think, I think scientifically you're capable of making memories
0: somewhere around three. Hmm. According to one of Cobain's visitors at the clinic, I was ready to see him look like shit and depressed. But he looks so fucking great. He walked out an hour later at uh, 7.25 p.m., told the clinic staff that he was stepping out on the patio for a smoke, and according to Love, he jumped over the fence. Actually, it was a brick wall more than six feet high. We watch our patients really well, said a spokesman for Exodus, but some do get out. So literally, he just, like, jumped the wall and left. Yeah,
3: he's like, okay, I came for everybody else, but I'm out of here.
0: But again, I don't know if that was really his choice. Like, people are forcing him to do these things. No
3: one forces you to jump a fence to leave detox that they wanted you to go
0: to. Yeah, but he didn't want to go to detox. Oh, right, 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 right. So That's that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, so He that- might not have wanted to go to rehab, so he yeah. jumped the wall because he did not want to be there because he was kind of being forced to be there.
3: Yeah, he's like, peace out,
0: I'm out of here. Like, no. Sorry, that's speculation. Sorry, that's just what I think. Don't sue me. Well, I think <laughs> I think that, you know, my own speculation, I think that that's
3: a pretty accurate assessment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yay, thank you. <laughs> for,
3: well, uh, you think of all the reasons why someone would jump a fence to get away from something. It's like, okay, it's. A, I feel like it's fairly obvious that he didn't want to be there, that he went for everybody <laughs> that expected him and asked him to go. He made a point to
0: let them know that he was there, and then he's like, and peace out. Yep. The next day, Love canceled Cobain's credit cards and hired a private investigator to track him down. Now, this is where the documentary Soaked in Bleach comes in. So the entire documentary is kind of told from the private investigator's point of view. And again, I'm not going to get into the tinfoil hat theories, but there is a lot of really weird and interesting things that do come up in the documentary. And he does have audio recordings to back stuff up. I will say that.
3: Yeah, I did watch that one. Um, it is definitely a conspiracy theory uh, initiator, <laughs> or yes, igniter, <laughs> incendiary, <laughs> potentially. I mean, it's definitely one of those that would incite several conspiracy theories.
0: Well, I, I, I will say if you are interested in seeing. Any of the documentaries. I know several of them are on Prime. Including Soaked in Bleach. I believe Kurt and Courtney is there. And Montage of Heck. I think you can watch that in a couple of different places. Including on YouTube. But literally like. They're out there. And uh, Montage of Heck is really cool. Because they have. I talked about this before. They had like classic videos of him as a kid. You know. It's. They rotoscope some of his recordings, so that's like, animation for things that are just audio recordings. So that one's a really cool one. But uh, if you're interested in the tinfoil stuff, go check out Soaked in Bleach. It, it is compelling. It is very interesting. I'm just not going to get into it. <laughs> so, like I was saying, she hired the private investigator, but he had actually already flown back to Seattle. I talked to Callie, which was, you know, Francis's nanny, whose real name is Michael DeWitt. Carlson said, who had said he had seen Kurt on Saturday, April the 2nd, but couldn't get a hold of him. Neither could anybody else. On April 4th, Cobain's mother, Wendy, who said that she had been afraid of her son's safety for some time, filed a missing persons report. And she told the police that Cobain might be suicidal and suggested that they look for Cobain in a particular three-story brick building described as the location for narcotics in Seattle's upscale Bohemian Capitol Hill District. Now, in the documentary, I believe that he puts forth that Wendy didn't actually call and file the missing person's report, that that was actually Courtney, because she had called the facility something like 32 times and was relentless in calling. And so she was just trying to get any angle to get anyone there. The weird thing is she didn't go home herself. But I
3: will say... Because I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Okay. So I will say, though, if you are concerned, one, if she's in a treatment program, it would be hard for her to leave on just a suspicion alone. Um, Two, if you are concerned that he is missing, do you really want to put yourself where you cannot communicate with anybody for several hours during travel to get back home? I mean, that's true. So no one can get a hold of you either because... This isn't really the heyday of cell phones and, you know, and regardless, if you're on a plane and in an airport, you can't really, no one could contact her. So I think if if yeah. it were me, I might be kind, I mean, now with all the cell phones and everything, yeah, I might be a lot more ready to, like, go try to figure out any way I could to get home in case he was there. But, like, this was 30 years ago and this was not, like, cell phones are everywhere and everybody can get in touch with you anywhere. Like, so I don't know how willing I would be to spend several hours not being able to be in communication with anybody in case something were happening to him or he did try to reach out, you know? Yeah. Especially when she knows that he's in a very precarious spot at this point.
0: Yeah. Maybe I'm just the kind of person that like, I need to be on the front line. Like I need to, I need to be the one. I can't just, I just can't sit still While someone else does that legwork, I would probably be on a plane. Like, I need to be there. Neighbors say that they spotted Cobain in a park near his house during this period, looking ill and wearing a a thick jacket. Cobain was also believed to have spent a night at his summer home in nearby Carnation with an unidentified friend. Sometime on or before the afternoon of April 5th, Cobain barricaded himself in the greenhouse, and this is... What I'm about to present to you is the final report. So this is the this is what has been presented to us as what happened. Of course, there's always going to be conjecture or infighting. So please understand that this is just the information that I found as it was laid out. Okay. He barricaded himself in the greenhouse above the garage by propping a, school, a stool against its French doors. The evidence at the scene suggests that he removed his hunter cap, which he wore when he didn't want people to recognize him, and dug into a cigar box that is believed to have contained his drug stash. He penned a one-page note in red ink. He also tossed his wallet on the floor, opened to his Washington driver's license, which his friends believed was to help the police in identifying him. Love reconstructed the rest of the tragedy for MTV. Cobain drew a chair up to a window overlooking the Puget Sound, sat down and took some drugs, most likely heroin, and pressed the barrel of the 20-gauge shotgun to his head and evidently using his thumb pulled the trigger. Though the county medical examiner has determined that Cobain died on the afternoon of April 5th, police report that two people claim to have spoken to him on April 6th. So again, weirdness. And... If you watch Soaked in Bleach, they do a, they did a toxicology report, and there was a ton of heroin in his system, basically saying, like, he wouldn't have been able to put the gun in his mouth, and then the way that he had to hold the gun, the way that the cartridge would have injected from the gun, would have had to have bounced off something to end up on the other side of his body. So, weirdness. Uh, In a cruel twist of fate, it wasn't until April 6th that Love's private investigator arrived in Seattle. I was working with an investigator, Carlson said, and the day we were going to Carnation to look for him, we found out that he was dead. Before Cobain's body was found, the police said that they asked workers outside of his house if they had seen him, though the police did not go inside the house. Elsewhere on April 7th, an emergency phone call was placed in 911 about a possible overdose victim at the Peninsula Hotel. The police, the fire department, and the ambulance arrived at the scene. What they found was love and whole guitarist Eric Alderson... Frances Bean and her nanny were staying in the room next door, just so you know. Love was taken to the Center County Hospital, arriving around 9.30 a.m., and she was released two and a half hours later. Lieutenant Joe Lombardi of the Beverly Hills Police said that Love was arrested immediately after her discharge and booked for possessing a controlled substance, possession of drug paraphernalia, possession of a hypodermic syringe, and possession of receiving stolen property. Criminal lawyer Barry Tarlow, Love's Love's attorney, said Love wasn't under the influence of heroin and didn't overdose. He said that she had an allergic reaction to the tranquilizer Xanax. Tarlow said that the stolen property was a prescription pad that her doctor had left there when he was visiting. There were no prescriptions written on it, and the controlled substance, it was not narcotics, Tarlow said. It's Hindu good luck ashes, which she received from her entertainment lawyer, Rosemary Carroll. On April 8, 1994 body was discovered in the greenhouse above the garage at Cobain's Lake Washington Boulevard East House by VECA electrical employee Gary T. Smith, who had arrived that morning to install security lighting. And remember, he did say that, like, the reason why he wanted to get the gun from his friend was that there were trespassers, so I can only imagine, like, the security lights were meant to deter anybody that were trying to break in or to trespass on his property.
3: Right, because you said the property, the way it was set up, like a lot of people could just like sneak on and hide places. But
0: when was that appointment made and by who? The body would be recovered and confirmed to be Cobain's. Smith thought he was asleep until he saw the blood oozing from his ears. He also found a suicide note with a pen stuck through it inside a flower pot. A Remington Model 11 20-gauge shotgun purchased for Cobain by his friend, Dylan was found on Cobain's chest. It had been legally purchased by Carlson and at Stan Baker's gun shop in Seattle, Washington. Cobain did not want to purchase the gun in his name because he thought the police might seize it. Again, I'm just reading the the report as it came out. So we've already covered some of these points, so sorry if you're hearing this twice. Uh, The police had taken his gun away twice in the previous 10 months. The King County Medical Examiner noted puncture wounds on the inside of both of his right elbows. The shotgun, a 20-gauge Remington Model 11, was not checked for fingerprints until May 6, 1994. So the day that, I think, the day that the body was discovered. According to the fingerprint analysis reports, four latent prints were lifted, but they were not usable. The Seattle Police report states that the shotgun was inverted on Cobain's chest with his left hand wrapped around the barrel. On April 14, 1994, the Seattle Post reported that Cobain was high on heroin when he pulled the trigger. The paper reported that the toxicology test determined that the level of morphine in Cobain's blood system was 1.52 milligrams per liter and that there was also evidence of valium in his blood. The report contained a quote from Dr. Randall Baseleff of the Chemical Toxicology Institute stating that Cobain's heroin level was a high concentration by any account. He also stated that the strength of the dose would depend on many factors, including how habitual Cobain was to the drug.
3: I want to back up for a second there because I know, like, there's a lot of speculation of, like, oh, well, he had too much heroin to have been able to do it. But, again, as you just said, it'd be a high amount. But, again, it's it's kind of like a tolerance that you build. So it'd be a high amount, but... If he's been a habitual user for a number of years, it may have still been where he was functional. So, continue.
0: No, and that's that's true, but, I mean, by any account, I mean, that, that, that one line suggests to me that no matter how habitual it was, that it it would have been an, an incredibly large amount. I'm not saying that it wasn't. I'm just saying... It could have been enough to
3: do something wonky and still work a gun.
0: Love was released from the jail at uh, 3 p.m. after posting a $10,000 bail. She immediately checked herself into the Exodus Recovery Center, the same rehabilitation facility for which her husband had just escaped a week earlier, which is weird. The following day, April 8th, she checked out when she had received word that her husband had been found. The whole rehabilitation, like checking yourself into the same rehabilitation center, is kind of weird because I know we have... What passages in Malibu we have? I know passages. Was she
3: aware at this point that her husband's body had been found?
0: Because maybe she was looking for him. I don't know, but she checked herself into the facility. So it wasn't like she checked the facility. She checked herself into the facility. I don't know. Maybe she
3: felt she'd have a better shot if she was a patient. I don't know. Or maybe Uh, trying to cover something up. So she just checked herself in and uh, who knows, but why she checked herself in instead of just going there, but I, I don't pretend to know her frame of mind either. Again, I'm just playing devil's advocate.
0: Yeah, I, I, I will not, I don't understand the line of thinking, but, you know, desperate time, she I mean. She's desperate. Yeah, She's a
3: on. desperate woman. She's trying to find her husband, because at this point we don't even know if she knows that he's been
0: found. Right. So she did check out when she received word that her husband had been found. And I can only imagine how that went, that, that, wow, oh, Jesus. Yeah, like. So on April 10th, 1994, two memorial services were held. A private service was held at the Unity Church of Truth for 200 members of his family, close friends and employees of Nirvana's label and management team. Two private wakes were also held, one at Courtney Love's house and the other one at Chris Alex's house. A public memorial service was held at the Seattle Center, where a recording of Love's reading Cobain's suicide note was played. Near the end of the vigil, taped messages from Courtney and Chris were aired over the loudspeakers. And Chris thanked their fan for their concern and urged the crowd to follow their dreams. Catch a groove and let it flow out of your heart. That's where the music will always be. It was hard to hear the pain in Chris's voice. Courtney's recording took a different tone. Overwrought with emotion and clearly devastated, she let out her anger and frustration, crying, Why didn't you just fucking stay? He is such an asshole. I want you to all say asshole really loud. The crowd obliged, screaming asshole. Okay, so I'm going to do something that we've never done before here on Rock and Roll Heaven. Uh, We're not usually the ones to play interviews or any other kinds of recordings um, unless it's a, an actual song. But because it's, it's such an anomaly and so such a moment encapsulated in time, I'm actually going to play Courtney Love reading the suicide note from Kurt. So I suggest if you are triggered, skip ahead about seven minutes because that the the, the, the recording is actually about six and a half minutes long. So if you think this is going to be something that is going to affect you, uh, please do skip ahead because it can be triggering. So I'm going to go ahead and play that now.
4: I feel the same way you guys do. <laughs> if you guys don't think that I used to sit in this room, when you play guitar and say, I feel so honored to be near him. You're crazy. Anyway, he left a note. It's more like a letter to the fucking editor. I don't know what happened. I mean, it was going to happen. But it could have happened when he was 40. He always said he was going to outlive everybody and be 120. I'm not going to read you all the note because it's none of the rest of your fucking business, but some of it is to you. I don't really think it takes away his dignity to read this considering that it's addressed to most of you. He's such an asshole. I want you all to say asshole really loud. This note should be pretty easy to understand. All the warnings from the Puck Rock 101. Curses over the years since my first introduction to the shall we say ethics involved with independence and the embracement of your community has proven to be very true. I haven't felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music along with really writing. Something for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the manic roar of the crowd begins, it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for Freddie Mercury, (laughs) who seemed to love and relish in the love and adoration from the crowd. Well, Kurt, so fucking what? Then don't be a rock star, you asshole. Which is something I totally admire and envy. The fact is, I can't fool you, any one of you. It simply isn't fair. To you or to me The worst crime I can think of Would be to pull people off by faking it Pretending as if I'm having 100% fun No Kurt, the worst crime I can think of is for you to just Continue being a rock star when you fucking hate it And just fucking stop Sometimes I feel as I should have a punch In time clock before I walk out On stage, I've tried everything Within my power to appreciate it And I do, God believe me I do, but it's not enough I appreciate the fact that I and we have affected and entertained a lot of people. I must be one of those narcissists (laughs) who only appreciate things when they're alone. I'm too sensitive. Oh, I need to be slightly numb in order to regain the enthusiasm I once had as a child. On our last three tours, I've had a much better appreciation of all the people I've known personally and as fans of our music. But I still can't get out the frustration, the guilt, and the empathy I have for everybody. There's good in all of us. And I simply love people too much. So why did not you just fucking stay? So much that it makes me feel too fucking sad sad little sensitive unappreciative pisces jesus man oh shut up pastor why don't you just enjoy it i don't know then he goes on to say personal things to me that are none of your damn business personal things of francis that are none of your damn business i had a good very good and i'm grateful But since the age of seven, I've become hateful towards all humans in general only because it seems so easy for people to get along and have empathy, empathy, only because I love and feel for people too much, I guess. Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the last years. I'm too much of an erratic, moody person and I don't have the passion anymore so remember and don't remember this because this is a fucking lie it's better to burn out than to fade away God you asshole peace, love, empathy Kurt Cobain remember there's some more personal things that are none of your damn businesses and just remember this is all bullshit But I want you to know one thing. That 80s tough love bullshit, it doesn't work. It's not real, it doesn't work. I should have let him, we all should have let him have his numbness. We should have let him have the thing that made him feel better, that made his stomach feel better. We should have let him have it. Instead of trying to strip away his skin. You go home and you tell your parents, don't you ever try that tough love bullshit on me because it doesn't fucking work. That's that's what I think. And I'm laying in our bed. And I'm really sorry. And I feel the same way you do. I'm really sorry, you guys. I don't know what I could have done. I wish I'd have been here, and I wish I hadn't listened to other people, but I did. Every night I've been sleeping with his mother, and I wake up in the morning, I think it's him, because her body's sort of the same, and I have to go now. Just tell him he's a fucker, okay? Just say, fucker, you're a fucker. And
0: that you love it. Okay, so that was Courtney reading part of the suicide note. And if you'll notice that she had her own asides and like, it almost seemed like she was having an argument with Kurt while she was reading it. So um, it it, it can be rough to listen to that. So talking about the suicide note, while working for Love, Grant, who was the, the PI that she had hired, he was actually given access to Cobain's suicide note and used her fax machine to make a photocopy, which has since been widely distributed. And literally, you can just go online, just Google Kurt Cobain's suicide note, and you will find it immediately. And it is available with transcript, and it's available in its actual, like, physical form. Um After studying the notes, Grant believes that it was actually a letter written by Cobain announcing his intent to leave Love, Seattle, and the music business. Grant asserted that in the lines at the very bottom of the note, separate from the rest are the only parts implying suicide. While the official report on Cobain's death concludes that Cobain wrote the note, Grant claims that the official report does not distinguish between these final lines from the rest of the note and assumes that it was entirely written by Cobain. Despite consulting with many handwriting experts, some disagree with Grant's claims the document examiner Janice Parker concluded that the note was written by Cobain after spending two weeks examining the original copy. When Dateline NBC was sent a copy of the note, uh, they sent it out to four different handwriting experts. One concluded that the entire note was in Cobain's hand while the other three were said to be a sample that, that it was inconclusive. One expert contacted by the television series Unsolved Mysteries God, I love Unsolved Mysteries expressed the difficulty in drawing a conclusion given that the note being a photocopy, not the original, made it harder to distinguish. But in the very same documentary, two other experts found that the writing, especially the last four lines, were suspicious. So, that. Um, so after she gave that presentation, she showed up personally at the, the public memorial and actually handed out some of Kurt's clothes to the people that stuck around till the end. And she kind it was weird because it seemed like Courtney almost stepped out of her comfort zone and people would start showing up at the Lake Washington house as, you know, making that like a makeshift memorial. And she would come out and talk to fans and console them and she became a rock for them. So it was really interesting to see that, you know, her behavior after the, after everything was said and done, she kind of gave herself over to the fans. Which I thought was very sweet. That is very sweet. I mean,
3: this was a difficult time for her too. So you know, partially maybe in consoling them, sh- it helped her. It was kind of cathartic, maybe. But I mean, it is really nice that she could have been upset and chased them off, and but instead she chose to, you know, embrace them and and help them through a difficult time as well. So it's nice that she did that.
0: Yeah. She could have rejected them, told them to get our, you know, get off my property. She was trying to grieve herself, but she, she integrated herself into the fan base. I just think it's kind of a cool thing to do. It is. (sighs) She
3: knew how much he meant to his fans and how much he meant to her. And like I say, I think maybe it's speculative, I know, but maybe in a weird way, it was helpful for her too.
0: Yeah. So... Cobain's body was cremated. Uh, love divided his ashes. She kept some in a teddy bear and some in an urn. She took another portion of his ashes to the there's a Buddhist monastery uh, there was a Buddhist monastery in Ithaca, New York, and some of his remains were ceremoniously blessed by the Buddhist monks and mixed, in, mixed into clay which were used to make memorial sculptures, which I think is so cool. That's so cool. Um a final ceremony was arranged for Cobain by his mother on May 31st, 1999 that was attended by both Love and a Buddhist monk chanted while his daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, scattered his ashes onto McLean Creek in Olympia, Washington, the city where he had found his true artistic muse. And that is where I leave you.
3: Tough stuff, man. Tough stuff. Complicated, it's hard.
0: Very complex.
3: You know, he and it's, it's was
0: hard to be on the inside looking out onto something like this. We, we don't know their mindset. You don't... Y- people, people deal with addiction in different ways. You know, Kurt had a lot of deep-seated issues, especially from his childhood, and so it's very hard to try to put yourself into a place where you can truly understand where he was going, like what, what he was going through, And that's in the end, that's why I didn't want to go with the tinfoil stuff, was because it doesn't matter in the end. We lost a voice of a generation. We lost a beautiful soul. What we lost was a human life. And whatever led to that, the tragedy is that we don't have Kurt anymore. No one has Kurt anymore. And that's what's important. You know, there's so many,
3: so many conspiracy theories, so many takes and opinions on it all. I mean, there was so much that happened there. And I think, you know, partially that's why there is so much on him and on his death. And there's so many different layers and different perspectives and different pieces of that puzzle that, you know, you can never truly know what is going on in someone's mind um, unless they share it with you and he definitely was one of those people that it seems that he would you know go through all of those layers daily just, just thinking through everything you know and that's a very tough thing and and because he was so important to music and he he brought this new this whole new perspective and this whole new piece to the table that wasn't really out there and he was so important to so many people I think that has just spurred on these desires sorry for the dog in the background guys but it's spurred on so many people to to look into this and to investigate it and to really try to dive deep and understand it but at the bottom but you know as as you say Aldi bottom line we no longer have this person In the world, you know, his light shined really bright and uh, unfortunately was dimmed too quickly. Um, But, you know, at least his music still lives on, his legacy still lives on, you know, both in both in that music and in those writings and with his daughter and his family, you know, it's just um, these are. Incredibly complicated stories sometimes to tell because there's just so many pieces that we can't really, really, truly understand.
0: Right. It's like these are hard, you know, the the suicide ones are really hard.
3: Especially when you compound it with, you know, complicated history and potential mental, you know, mental health issues and drug issues and... You know, you com- you compound all of that, and it's just, just a really complicated story. Um, you know, he will be missed for sure, and uh, it has been missed. But unfortunately, that is his story, and uh,
0: all we can do is try to tell it the best we can. Yeah, and if you or anyone that you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, the National Suicide Prevention Helpline is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And that number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. And I will put information about that in the show notes. So if, if you or someone that you love is going through this, please... Always talk, have an like. Let them know that they do have an ear. Let them know that you that someone is there for them, because sometimes that's all they need is to know that they're not alone. To our international listeners, I would hope that you,
3: if you know somebody or if you are somebody, um, but that information does not is you know it's a national, uh, it's national information. I would hope that you would uh, also be
0: encouraged to seek out the equivalent type of help uh wherever you are. Yeah, and and on that we will end this episode. I'm bummed because this is TJ's last episode and it was a real downer. <laughs> it was a real downer um, all around, eh? Yep. Yeah, but um you know we could still you could still reach out to me. Yay. If you would like to donate to our Patreon, it's patreon.com backslash rock and Heaven. Our Twitter is Rock and Roll LT. Um, our Facebook Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. I'm still not saying our website, and you can email me at Rock and Roll LT at gmail And uh, TJ, do you want to give out your Instagram so people can follow you on that and to see your journey? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You guys can can continue to follow me or
3: follow me for the very first time on. On Instagram, I'm at tl, and Twitter is the same, although I don't really use Twitter that often. And then on Facebook, I am facebook.com slash music. Yeah, there's there hasn't been much going on lately, but I'm hoping that that changes soon. Uh, in the meantime, you get lots of
0: really cute pictures of my dogs on Instagram. <laughs> and, um... You know, you guys, I know this is a scary and unprecedented time, and we're all hoping that, you know, eventually life will get back to normal. I will be taking a month-long break to kind of uh, reassess and get our new host acclimated. Hopefully take care of yourself a little bit along the way. (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've been more busy... During this time than I had Before this time So um, <laughs> uh, Please take care of each other guys uh, That's my, my last message to you Make sure you wash your hands Check in on people that you love And Keep rocking in the free world TJ Yeah I'm going to miss you oh, i miss you too Shall we All say right. it for the last no.
3: time together
0: Let's just say it for the last time together, all right? All right. Bye. Bye. (laughs) I'm going to miss you. All right. And recorder's off. (laughs)